Kittens, we are back with another very special stay-at-home self-quarantine episode of The Brando Cast. And today, we are talking to someone who has a brand new film out in the world that everyone listening to this podcast right now has to go and watch as soon as we are done. He's a writer, he's a performer, he's a stand-up. He was one of the founding members of Mystery Science Theater. He's written on tons of shows and performed countless hours of stand-up. But again, as I said, he's the director of a fantastic new documentary. It's called Michael DeBar, Who Do You Want Me To Be? That means I'm only talking to one individual on the planet Earth today, and that is J. Elvis Weinstein. Why, hello. And you actually went Weinstein, which I appreciate. I know. I'm sure your entire life you've been Weinsteined to death. I have, and I stopped correcting people until the Harvey thing, and then I had to go back to it. Uh, wh- please uh, tell me what is the Harvey thing? Harvey Weinstein. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. Duh. <laughs> I'm not high, but uh, I was capable of handling that softball that you gave me, but that's hysterical. Weinstein. But the J is Josh, correct? The J is Josh, and you can call me Josh. Fantastic. Now, the Elvis, is the Elvis adopted, or did the parents throw the Elvis on you? No, the, uh, the Elvis was adopted when I joined the Writers Guild uh, because there was already another Josh Weinstein. Uh, who was a, a Simpsons uh, showrunner at one point and Mission Hill and lots of things. Uh, and we've, we've been confused for each other for 25 years now. But uh, <laughs> um, So, yeah, so he was already Josh Weinstein, so I had to do something, and I threw in the Elvis to make my initials spell Jew is really why I did it. <laughs> and, uh, because <laughs> I figured I would be the first person in show business to take his Jewish name and change it to something slightly more Jewish. Uh, yeah. Not to sound like a total anti-Semite, but I would imagine that there might be uh, 10 or 12 Josh Weinsteins in the WGA and the WGA East. Yes, or something <laughs> close, at least. Yeah. But there's only one J. Elvis Weinstein, and that is you, and I'm so Damn fucking excited. Straight. Damn straight. And I'm so excited to, to talk to you today because I literally, two days ago, watched your phenomenal new documentary, Michael DeBar, Who Do You Want Me To Be, on Amazon Prime. And dude, what a fantastic accomplishment. So before we, we get talking about the, the rock and roll of the Brando cast, I, I just I just want to say congratulations. And I, and I the, the first question I have about this, what moved you to make a film with the great Michael DeBar? Uh, well, first of all, thank you. And uh, I, I, I actually met Michael working with him uh, on a show where he was... Uh, actually, I worked with him on two consecutive years. One year he, he was a guest star on our show, and the second year he was in the cast where he replaced Johnny Rotten, who had been in the pilot of the show. Now, what was that show? The show was called My Guide to Becoming a Rockstar, based on the British show The Young Person's Guide to becoming a rock star and it was Oliver Hudson was one of the stars and Kevin Rank and then uh, uh, Michael DeBar and Shannon Tweed played Oliver Hudson's parents and uh, so we were shooting up in Vancouver so I got a chance to hang with them and there'd be like you know an hour van ride from the hotel to the set and so I got time to talk with them and sort of observe him interacting with the world around him and seeing how while while he clearly wanted attention, he was uh, he was willing to sort of cater 
himself to whoever he was talking to. You know, he was talking to the young actors about Sidney Poitier and Tony Curtis, who he'd worked with, and then you know he's talking to the to the to the crew guys about Zeppelin, and you know, telling those stories. And you know, I'm realizing, and I'm watching him, and I'm gonna, you know, I'm an observant sort of person, so I'm sort of fascinated by this guy and watching how he keeps sort of defying my expectations about narcissism. You know, because he was he was, uh, you know, while he did hold court, he was also like so willing and eager to turn the attention on the person he was talking to 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 ask them about themselves and listen to what they said which is not typically what you get from this sort of person and then i started to realize no this guy is just like a junkie for moments any kind of moment he can create you know and so i just i really liked him and and you know as we talked and became friends so i just realized he's incredibly smart too and funny and self-aware and so I could, I could sort of point out what I'm seeing him doing, and him, he would go, yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. And so we, we sort of reached this, this connection with each other. And uh, we started actually to write a book. I did several interviews on tape, thinking I would like you know, co-write a book with him and sort of put my comedy voice along with his story. And uh, we did some of that, and both got sort of disinterested in the idea of writing a book and more busy with other stuff. And it laid fallow for several years, and then we ended up on a podcast together as guests. And uh, I went, "Why were we thinking about a book? We should have done a doc." And he was like, "Yes!" And like within three weeks, I was shooting. That's incredible. Now, uh, was that was he a guest on your podcast with uh, with the great Andy Kindler? Uh, he was not. No, we were both the guests on uh, a, a woman named Rachel Lichtman's radio show. That is that is really incredible. I, I do a radio show. Uh, on Sirius XM with Ahmed Zappa, and I've been friends with the Zappa oh, family. Cool. I've been friends with the Zappa family for over twenty-five years, so I've had the chance to be around Michael a few times over the years at Zappa family events, uh, and and I was always fascinated by him for all the reasons that you said because when he walks in the room he has such incredible presence you just can't help but go like nope there's Michael DeBar. Uh, because you know I'm Gen right. X, uh, it, it wasn't just uh, you know his his music. It was his appearance on Miami Vice. It was WKRP in Cincinnati. Yeah, and I was going to say that's what I mean. That was part of my fascination too. Is I you know I encouraged them to cast him on the show because of I knew his work and I remember growing up like when he joined the power station connecting all these weird dots you know and there wasn't the internet you know and I even remember the VJs on MTV like pretending to know who he was <laughs> like they sort of were knew who Silverhead and Detective were but right. they were you know they were also like he's this actor who I was at Live Aid really? uh, I was at Live Aid with my father I made him get there for the first band of the day and that was the Hooters uh, and, and so I remember that that moment when he came out on stage because I think that there were a lot of people that didn't know that he had taken over for Robert Palmer in the power station but right. you know that guy came out like a fucking cannonball out of a cannon uh, when they when they started their performance at Live Aid and and that was uh, I mean that was uh, you know you chronicle it so well in the in the show just his ability to step into those huge shoes and deliver a fantastic performance i mean it's just such a tribute to him i just remember like back then if you ever needed a rock star or an international villain with a british accent michael debar is your guy 
Absolutely. He's got, uh, he's got the cheekbones of a villain and, uh, he, you know, the thing about him is that it's kind of like what I was describing about what sort of charmed me is that, you know, when you want a rock star character, there's no one better because he both knows how to be it. But he also knows what's funny about it. Well, he is the 26th Marquis de Bar. So that, and by the way, I won't ruin anything in in the film because I really want everyone to go and and watch this incredibly well-crafted and gorgeous, uh, high-quality film. But you do start off the film by showing the history of the Marquis, and he is the 26th Marquis de Bar, which goes back to, what was it, 1216, 1218, 1220? Yeah, 1216, I think, the Battle of Bouvines. Amazing. Not only is he a Highlander, which I'm convinced right. he's a, I'm convinced he's a Highlander, but he has he has royal blood in him, and I thought one of the coolest part of or at about least noble blood, noble blood, fair enough, noble blood. And so I felt like one of the coolest parts of the film was watching this man with noble blood be able to sort of be a chameleon, and I mean that in the best way. Uh, to be a chameleon no matter where he is in life. Uh, you said it when he talks to crew members about Led Zeppelin or he talks to actors about Sidney Portier. Just his ability to craft himself and be where he needs to be and be the person he needs to be in the moment is is really fantastic. And, you know, the, the charisma for days. And he, uh, when Amit's uh, mother... Uh, passed away, Gail Zappa, they had a small private memorial service for her. And the people that spoke that day were, you know, it was an insane lineup of people. It was Ed Begley Jr. It was Beverly D'Angelo. It was Pamela DeBar. It was Chevy Chase. Greg Barrett got up and spoke, which was amazing. Billy Bob Thornton, Steve Vai, and of course, uh, Michael, his speech, which uh, I, which I won't forget because uh, you know he is such a, a great character. So it's just such a cool thing, and and I hope that you guys are are basking in the glory because it feels like it's popping in the culture. It feels like it's on the radar a little bit. Yeah, it's fun. It's you know, and and it's been uh, uniquely uh, positive for something that that gets put out into the world these days. All the feedback, so. Last question is, when did you guys yeah, start? The, thing, the, the one fun point I wanted to point out, speaking of the Zappas, is Gail Zappa actually got to see this film a, a, a couple of months before she died. She came to a screening I did in L.A. when it was, uh, when it was fresh and before all the clearances were done. And uh, she, was, she was wonderful, and she, uh, she loved it. She claimed to have just really loved it. Uh, she, well, worthy of her own documentary, Gail Zappa. But, uh, yeah. wow, that's a, that's a really cool thing. Uh, so again, congratulations, uh, Jay Elvis. What a what a fantastic uh, what a fantastic piece of work, and and I hope it has wings and takes you where you need to go because uh, it's just really cool and perfect Thanks. perfect quarantine viewing, people. Yeah, I think you'll you'll leave feeling good. I really I feel uh, confident in saying. Well, that. it's life affirming. It's yeah. life affirming because to me the another takeaway was you know this guy lives light life with such vigor and passion and light and positivity you know in his sobriety which is a part of the film which is, he's always been open about the just that that is a that's a positive being and um, and I just felt like it was really life affirming so you know kudos to both of you and and I selfishly I hope to have him on this show. Um, and we've been talking about having him on uh, our show, Rock Tales with Amit, because the, both of them know where all the bodies are buried up right. in Laurel Canyon. 
especially underneath that old house that Lady Gaga bought. All right, enough rambling about that. Today uh, on the BrandoCast, um, I asked Jay Elvis what some of his uh, favorite uh, uh, bands were when he was a, a younger dude, and he brought me someone that I've been chomping at the bit to talk about here on the BrandoCast. So, without further ado, cats and kittens, let me just say that Declan Patrick McManus was born August 25th, 1954 in London, England, and he is known professionally as Elvis Costello. He has won multiple awards in his career, including Grammy Awards in 1999 and 2020, and he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2003. In 2004, Rolling Stone ranked Costello at number 80, idiots, on its list of 100 greatest artists of all time. Costello began his career as part of London's pub rock scene in the mid-70s and later became associated with the first wave of British punk, a new wave that emerged soon thereafter. He would, of course, go on to write hit songs in multiple rock genres. Elvis Costello. Is that where the Elvis and the J. Elvis comes from? It is, absolutely, yes. Go. You fill in the blanks for me. Well, no, I mean it really was. It was. I actually considered Jay Einstein Weinstein as both a, as you know as a Wait, pronunciation Jay, guide for Jay Einstein Weinstein. <laughs> yes, but I went with uh, that. Sounded a little too pretentious, so I, I, I went with Elvis instead. And uh, and yes, it was in deference to Elvis Costello, who was a uh, a big. Uh, a big soundtrack to my life at the time. I was 20 or 22, I guess, when this all happened. Okay, so where, where, uh, when did Elvis come into, when, when did you start your fandom of Elvis Costello? Uh, like a lot of music, it came into my life via my older brother. Uh, and he had sort of a short, a short pause at Elvis Costello because some cool kid had given him a tape and it was Armed Forces. And, uh, my brother drove around for a summer with, he had this boom box that was, uh, seat belted into the back seat of his of his dodge omni and uh and armed forces played throughout that summer and it, and and you know the hooks all got into my ears like fish hooks and uh i stayed i stayed with all this and my brother moved on to more to the dead he went in a dead direction now where where were you guys where did you guys grow up uh minnesota in uh, a suburb of minneapolis uh-huh edina st the same, su- the same suburb St. Louis Park, same suburb as Al Franken and the Cone Brothers. I, I I know it well. I went to uh, I went to Northwestern, and there were a million kids from those suburbs of Minneapolis at that goddamn okay, school. Sure. Oh yeah, I had friends. A, a whole bunch of my friends grew up in Edina, and a, and a bunch of kids grew up in St. Louis eaters. Park. Cake eaters. <laughs> <laughs> I was a a giant nerd for the replacements and soul asylum and Husker do when I was in college. So we actually would drive up to Minneapolis. Uh, I've said this on this podcast so many times. I've, That's okay. I like I've, hearing it though. Yeah. But we, we would, we would make pilgrimages up to Minneapolis because what an incredible city and what an incredible city with a rock scene. So were you aware of all that stuff in the air when you were growing up as a teen in Minneapolis, soul asylum and Husker do and, and the replacements and, and whatnot? Yes, I, I, to- I totally was aware of it, and it was uh, it was a very cool in the '80s, a very artsy bohemian scene, and uh, 
you know, I sort of got into the art scene at 15, which was like 1987. So it was behind the curve of all of that stuff. But all the people I was hanging with were of that scene. So I sort of got grandfathered into it or reverse grandfathered into it, you know. So you started doing stand-up at 15, 16, 17 in Minneapolis, like actually yes. going to clubs and getting up on stage. Yeah, in fact, I was like going on the road doing one-nighters in the Dakotas by the time I was 16. Holy shit. <laughs> what was there was there an appetite for stand-up comedy in the Dakotas? There at that time there was an appetite for stand-up comedy in any bar that could get a microphone. I mean, wow. it was there was just there were so many gigs and one-nighters around the country that yeah, I mean, I'm you know from age you know sixteen to twenty. I that's what I did. Was I stopped at Mystery Science Theater? I did when I was seventeen and eighteen. Right and now, that was a local that Mystery Science Theater. Correct me if I'm wrong. Started on a, on a local channel in Minneapolis. Correct? Yeah, UHF station in Minneapolis. What channel did, was that? It was called KTMA TV twenty three. <laughs> and uh, we did like twenty episodes there, and then we. They built a cell tape of our best of moments is what sort of sold it to Comedy Channel. So would you would that be on uh, late night on on that UHF station, like after AWA Wrestling or something like no, that? No, it, it was on Sunday at 6, again, 60 minutes. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Weirdly enough. Well, you got to take whatever slot they get you, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's, no, that's Bob, we, fil- we filmed in the studio and had to be out by 5 p.m. because of the wrestling show that came in after us. But. Was was that literally Vern Gagne's AWA professional wrestling out of out of Minneapolis? It was not. It was a lower grade subset <laughs> of that. But you would see some of the some of the all star wrestling guys would come in through the studio. That's hilarious. And now you know not to ramble on about Mystery Science, which is such a legendary show. When that show jumped from KTMA to the big leagues. Uh, is that did that get you out of Minneapolis? Is that the thing that 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 prepared no, you? No, that show actually was done in uh, Eden Prairie, Minnesota, for its entire run. It oh was, wow! It, yeah, it was. It never left Minnesota. Oh wow! So I came out here when I was twenty after I had left the show. Wow, that's amazing! And that so that was that show was already on Comedy Central when you then eventually did your thing and then moved on. Correct. Fantastic. I did one more show. There was a show at the time. There was two competing comedy networks. There was Comedy Channel and Ha, which merged into Comedy Central. And uh, I did one more show there called uh, with Fred Willard called Access America, which was basically like America's Funniest Some Videos with cable access hosts. So once and I so I did those two shows, and then I was like, "There's no, you know, there's there's not going to be another." national show here i should really go where they make shows you know did you guys literally take cable access tapes from around the country and put them on that show yeah that's what it was it was it was all it was all just clips of uh of local local cable access personalities and moments i will admit to you uh mr weinstein that um i had a very short-lived show on eagle rock cable uh in the year of our lord 2001 from like April of 2001 until roughly the beginning of September 2001, okay. I had my own show called La La Land that was filmed in the studios on San Fernando and Fletcher. 
and it was you know broadcast i don't even know where it was broadcast but i have those tapes and i would just interview people about you know living in la and i had some interesting people on the show but uh 9-11 hit and um and then i just felt like it was just really dumb to do something so fluffy and light yeah it was a fun time to do frivolity and that's all that I was doing was just pure frivolity. But the cast of characters that hung out at the Eagle Rock Cable Studios was completely insane. I mean, it right. was the puppeteers and then the people that would just lurk around and beg you to like put them on your own show. And then they would, you know, with the promise of like, you could come on my show. I mean, right. it, was, it was between two ferns on steroids. And yeah, but it's kind of no different than the podcast scene now, you know? I know. I know. I know. What are we doing? Why are we even doing no, this? No, right I, I don't think it's bad. <laughs> I, I think it's something that's celebratable. Yeah, no. And I, I don't even, and we, and we weren't, you know, even on Access America, it was, it was not a sneer. You know, it was Fred Willard. So how much sneer are you going to get? Right. You know, exactly. It, was, it wasn't, you know, we had to have these people submit their material at the time. So, you know, you couldn't like be dicks to them. <laughs> and in a city like, I would just say to the people listening at home, in a city like Los Angeles, you can imagine the cable access scene here for oh, the people yeah. who believe that it's the, it's the pathway to the promised land and their own show on a major network. All right. In 1976, D.P. Costello was signed to the British independent label Stiff Records on the basis of a really strong demo tape. His manager at Stiff suggested that the singer start using the name Elvis. Costello's first single for Stiff was Less Than Zero and was released on March 25, 1977. Four months later, his debut album, My Aim Is True, was released to moderate commercial success, with Costello appearing on the cover in what became his trademark oversized glasses and his resemblance to Buddy Holly. That record was produced by the great Nick Lowe. Oddly, Costello failed to chart with his early singles, which also included the ballad Allison. Stiff records were only distributed in the UK at that time, which meant that Costello's first album was not yet available in the U.S. and only available as an import and hard to find. What other bands were you into as a young dude? Let me. Can I just throw in a side note about that first album? Please. Uh, not, not that album was not with the Attractions, and the band that played back backing for him on that band was a band named Clover. Many members of which became the core of Huey Lewis and the Newt. That is a, a, a detail that Wikipedia did not throw at me yesterday. That is uh-huh. fantastic. Mm-hmm. Who do you know? The, <laughs> Clover were they? They Clover. were British. They were British dudes. There, uh, the, no, also- I think they were. Amer- I think they were American dudes in England. And uh, I think Huey himself was over there in England at the time too, but wasn't on the record. But yeah, those many of the members of Clover became members of Huey Lewis and the News. I can't, I can't name them. <laughs> if I had a gun to my head, I could not name a member of the News. Uh, even no, the saxophone guy. I, there's just no way. God damn it! I, I would go. My guess would be it's Johnny something. <laughs> Keyboards, give it up for Dan. <laughs> That's amazing. Clover got well. I guess they fell apart and eventually became the news. They they had no British hits. Exactly. Fantastic. All right. So when you you're, you get turned on to armed forces, then do you go backwards and start buying everything in the past? You you know, because Elvis Costello was so everywhere in the air in the mid eighties, early nineties. I mean, he never left us. Uh, but did you ever go back right. and start at the beginning and then buy all those? 
early records? Yeah, yeah. I was at the time. I was very much a completist. So, so right. I, 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 you know, up until about about brutal youth, I had everything. At the same time, you're going for stand up comedy, right? So, how yeah. much bandwidth? How much bandwidth does it take to focus on that craft? And how much bandwidth can you sort of? give out to other hobbies like music or up up until 20 i was very focused on santa like those you know with mystery science theater in there as well but uh after mystery science theater i went back on the road and i had played like 40 states by the time i was 20 god so damn I, dude. You know, I, I was really into stand-up but along the way i had realized that i was really my my gift if you will uh, was joke writing. I mean, that's what I was especially good at. And and so by the time I was going to L.A., it was with the stated intention of being a TV writer uh, and the very quiet intention of becoming a star, baby. You know? <laughs> and, well, uh, yeah, well, and there was a lot of resistance to me being a star, but very little resistance to me being a writer. Everyone would see my stand-up and go, you're a really good writer. And I'd go, they don't like my stand-up. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, uh, but, as, but for people who are listening outside the city of Los Angeles, uh, the the clean path between stand up and writing. I mean, half the writers in town were stand ups at one point, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and we make we make good joke writers. You know, yeah, we are, we're we're good in a room, and uh, and it's a much better life than being on the road as a stand up. But it also sort of felt like a trick to me, you know, because I what I loved about stand up was the life working for an hour a day and then having the rest of the day to just do whatever the, every day could be different because I just don't like routine very much. And I so when I got to writing TV, especially my first job was uh, writing for Greg Kinnear's late night show on NBC. Uh, when when I my first guild job, right? Um, and you know that's a, a talk show is a total factory job. You know it's a total come to the office, do your thing, make the product, go home, start again the next day. And it's it's there's something satisfying about that, but there's also something very disposable and routine about it too. Any any fun people on that Greg Kinnear show? Uh, yeah, well, I, I worked uh, when I first got there. There was a lot of people who came through that staff, but uh, one of my best friends, Dave Gruber Allen, was on worked there the first year. A good buddy of mine, Joel Madison, uh, Mark Brazil came through there. I, I hired Margaret Smith at one point to be on my staff for a, a chunk of time, and uh, so yeah, no, it was it was. Uh, you know, and I like I, it was a small writing room. It was like me and three. I was I was I was the staff writer the first year, and then the head writer the second year. I was there. Did you miss the the road life of of doing stand up? Uh, not really. It was never. You know, it's it's a lot of day to kill, and uh, once you start work, you know, especially once I started becoming a someone who produced. You know, being productive as a stand-up is a whole different, you know, if you write two jokes, new jokes in a week as a stand-up, you're a prolific stand-up, you know. Yeah. <laughs> if you write that as a writer, you're an out-of-work writer, you know. So once, you know, once I started working, just doing stand-up honestly didn't feel like enough of a job, <laughs> but <laughs> it wasn't enough work for a day. But, you know, the stand-up itself, I love. The life of a stand-up, I, I don't miss that much. Wake, waking up in uh, Cleveland's and just having nothing to do until you have to go to, uh, to hee-hees yeah. or ha-has? Yeah, I, I, I think it's very likely I would have ended up a drug addict of some kind had I stayed on the road. Not that I was, like, headed that way, but imagining five more years of it, I don't know what else I could have done to kill the days. 
<laughs> but I seem to remember in those early nineties because I got here in 19, I got here in nineteen ninety. Okay, and I, was, I, I got here in ninety two. I dipped my toe for a little bit in the Largo scene in the mid nineties, and I think you were performing live all the time. Not all the time, but you were you were getting up at certain places, right? Yeah, I was always. I was always performing in some capacity. Sometimes I'd play bass for group, you know, the Naked Trucker show or something. Or sometimes that's right. That's what I remember because I because when the Naked Trucker, who was Dave Keckner and Dave Gruber Allen, uh, would perform at Largo. Uh, I mean, I was I was there for uh, so many of those shows. Yeah, and Gruber, Gruber and I have just done so much stuff together in, in terms of performing, like every kind of thing. I mean, Gruber and I have literally been in a TV show, a movie performed on Broadway. Uh, you know, we've done like so many things together over the years just because they happen. Uh, were you responsible for bringing Dave Gruber Allen to Freaks and Geeks? No, no, that was uh, Paul Feig and, uh, and Judd knew him too, but he was part of their world before I got here became part of that same world. Got you. I will tell you, I will bore you with my Freaks and Geeks story as soon as I say to the people out there, on December 17th, 1977, Elvis Costello and the Attractions replaced the Sex Pistols on Saturday Night Live, and they were scheduled to play Less Than Zero. However, in imitation of a rebellious act by Jimi Hendrix on a BBC show, Costello stopped the song mid-intro, yelling, Stop, Stop, to his band. The Attractions then played Radio, Radio instead, a song that criticizes the commercializations of the airwaves, which NBC and Lauren Michaels had forbidden them to play. Costello was subsequently banned from the show, but his insistence on performing Radio, Radio on SNL proved a boon to his debut album, and his popularity exploded in the U.S. Of course, the SNL ban was lifted in 1989. Uh, because I'm old, I actually remember that when he was on Saturday Night Live. I do too. I was, I was young, but I remember it happening. And uh, let me just do, can I just do my Elvis impression? Since uh, please. Radio is the sound salvation. Radio is cleaning up the nation. <laughs> that was spectacular. That was a. Have you done? Did you uh, did you do Elvis Costello uh, in your act? Uh, I didn't ever do it in my act, but I've I've done. In fact, with Gruber, we've done many things where I've uh, I've done I've broken out the Elvis. Because you you do look like you could be Elvis Costello's brother. Yeah. You're just his brother, Josh. Well, there you go. He's got a little in the theater of your mind. Uh, he's got a big Elvis Costello poster there in the in the office setup through the power of Zoom, which I'm able to see. Right. I'll, I'll bore you with my freaks and geeks story right now. Um, the first spec I ever wrote was a Freaks and Geeks spec that got me signed by Sue Nagel at UTA. Oh, nice. And I got it out in the world like before the fifth or sixth episode had aired because my then-girlfriend was the NBC executive in charge of the show. So I was watching dailies of the show with her at night. Oh, and, good. And just learning so much about the process. And so I was able to like just crank something out. And uh, it was probably still the best thing I've ever written. But uh, I fucking loved that show uh so much and and of course sue was hell-bent on getting me on that show for a season two but um (laughs) i I also had a very interesting i also had a very interesting seat into what was going on with that show and the reason why one of the greatest shows in the history of the world never went further than it did with an insane lineup of writers such as yourself uh and and judd apatow and paul feig and mike white uh, 
Mike, right, Mike White, uh, so many insane people, and th- now arguably one of the most ridiculous casts of of actors in the history of television, who've all gone on to be uh, massive successes at everything they do, whether it's John Daly or Linda Cardellini or you know Busy Phillips, who's going to have a new podcast coming out in a month. Seth Rogen's done okay. Seth Rogen has done. He's done fine. James Franco, I'm worried about. Yeah. Uh, the other guy who was in Sarah Marshall, you know, that, you know, yeah. hopefully things will work out for them. But I mean, just what an insane show. But I remember my then girlfriend begging Judd on the phone to play ball with the network and be <laughs> a little nicer to yeah. the powers that be who still didn't know how to market that show. Like they, they I, I remember that the guys in promo and publicity at NBC just didn't know what to do with it. They didn't know if it was a sitcom. They didn't know if it was a drama. Yeah. They didn't know if it was a teen thing. They just didn't know what to do. And and Garth Ensier was never behind it. He got he got talk, no. he got his arm twisted into picking it up in the first place, and so he just was never behind it. And Judd was just enthusiastically playing bad cop, and he, and he played bad <laughs> cop. He could get, oh you yeah, know, which was great for Paul. You know, Judd had a lot of clout then. Judd had just signed like a $14 million overall deal with DreamWorks. So Judd wasn't operating from a place of fear at the time. You know? No, and, and I think Cable Guy had come out right before uh, Freaks and Geeks 2, if I'm doing my math right. I so think he, had, yeah. he had a lot of juice from that. And, and I, I just remember the, the significant other saying like, please, just, just be a little nicer on the phone. It'll it'll take you guys a little further. I don't, but I don't know that it would have taken us to season two. Yeah, I really don't. I just they were so not behind it, and they moved it around all the time. It never aired more than twice in the same spot. It was well, that's their trick. Know, that was, and for that's that the things that networks can do to sabotage their own shows. Moving it to Saturday back then was sort of like, well, that's where it's going to go to die. Yeah. So and we knew it. I mean, we knew it when we got a back five instead of a back nine right. order. It's like okay. Well, now we know, and we could use these last five to back up the truck and put everything we ever wanted to do into these shows. So, and that's kind of what we did. What, we did what episode not, we were did, you responsible was, for? Uh, I, wrote, I co-wrote the Beers and Weirs with Judd, which was the first one after the pilot. And then I wrote Noshing and Moshing, which was the, the punk and uh, ventriloquism one. And Noshing and Moshing might be one of the best long-form things I ever wrote. For years, Jake Kasdan said it was his favorite thing he directed ever. Well, again, um, I mean, just a a ridiculous lineup of people uh, involved in that show, and and that it lives on 20-plus years later. Yeah, I think part of that is a function of it only being 18 episodes. So you you can ingest it and be done. It's not a big commitment. You know, I think that's part of why it's lived so long too i don't think that's the only thing i think it's pretty great too but yeah i think you know the fact that it isn't five seasons that you have to ingest to be a completist well for me as a rush nerd the 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 episode where jason uh you know buys the double bass drum kit and and tries to play rush was just um wildly important for a nerd like me Following a tour with other stiff artists, Elvis Costello and the Attractions recorded this year's model at Eden Studios in West London and released this incredible record in March of 1978. The Attractions had already performed most of the songs live prior to the recording of the record, which was also produced by Nick Lowe. Some of the more popular tracks on that record include I Don't Want to Go to Chelsea, The Beat, Pump It Up, and my favorite, Lipstick Vogue. 
In the U.S., Columbia Records saw Elvis as such a priority that his last name replaced the word Columbia on the label of the disc's original pressing. It was voted Best Album of the Year in the Village Voice, and in 2003, the album was ranked number 98 on Rolling Stone's magazine list of 500 greatest albums of all time. Uh, most importantly, in 1985, Robert Smith The Cure cited it as one of his favorite records. Would not have guessed that Robert Smith was an Elvis Costello fan, but who is it? Another side note is that there is a uh, documentary about that stiff tour you mentioned that's on Amazon Prime right now. That I just uh, and, and it is uh, fantastic. It features the injury of the Blockheads, Nick Lowe's in it, all the other stiff record bands uh, of the time. They just do a little bus tour around the UK. Yeah. And it, it's a great one. Well, I'm a rock doc nerd, which is why I found... Uh, the Michael DeBar uh, documentary so quickly uh, the other night because that's that's how I like to relax watching rock and roll documentaries. I was going to say the other thing that was a, a freedom of making this movie about Michael was that that had I made it about someone more uh, more in the rock canon, you know, is that none of the I didn't have to deal with any sacred music. Elaborates on that point. If well, you, you know, Michael is a is a great rock singer, but. He, you know, he ha- he was he's driven by the situation more than creating the situation with his music. So, you know, if he, he gets a record deal, he can write an album's worth of song. And uh, he did that several times in several genres, you know, with several co-writers. But none of them were really hits, aside from uh, Obsession. Uh, and it wasn't even his hit when that was a hit. So I didn't have to... Uh, you know, there wasn't a re- there wasn't a reverence for his music. You know that I had to be careful of with fans or be. You know, I didn't have to tell the story of a certain album or you know, there wasn't that thing that you know everyone knows him for that you have to pay service for or no or you're going to feel like the band that didn't play their hit. If you make a documentary about Duran Duran and you somehow leave out like the mid period of Duran Duran, all the fans right. will 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 come after you and go, "You don't understand. Like that stuff was as good as the early stuff." Seven of the Ragged Tigers, the best album they ever made, and you only gave it five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's that's a really I didn't even I didn't even think about that with Michael DeBar. It also probably made it a little bit easier just in terms of like dealing with some of the other artists that come into that documentary because you got you interviews with so many people correct so no one's really yeah. no one was really precious about anything no and it was important to me that none of it was precious it was important to me that it wasn't a nostalgia doc you know and as, as sort of pompous as this sounds is i really wanted to make a grown-up rock and roll movie which you did and on that thought I, I was thinking the other day, like, God damn it, I kind of wish that Michael would, I, I wish the power station would be able to do something, but we're in quarantine, so there's nothing to do now. There is right. no live performance. There is no getting out there and going to see live music, you know, which these... And there's no Tony Thompson either, who is uh, That's right. There's pretty no crucial. Tony Thompson. There's no Tony Thompson. Yeah, exactly. They Sheik was supposed to play with Duran Duran this summer. They, Duran Duran was going to do a big 40th uh, anniversary show in Hyde Park. Oh, wow. And and uh, Sheik featuring uh, Nile Rogers was going to open up for them. But obviously, Tony Thompson could not be there. 
John Taylor. John Taylor was really great. I'm really, it's really great in the doc. He was. He well. He's John Taylor is such an interesting character to me too because you know I've lived here in L.A. for a long time now and. You know, you you just get to brush up against some of these characters, and that's another person who's never not John Taylor. You know, he's such a nice right. and, and he's such a nice and open guy. He hasn't know, aside from the being top a three rock. button since nineteen seventy eight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's also the most handsome guy in rock and roll. So there's that too. Yeah. No, I felt all of these people made me feel like Chewbacca. <laughs> Well, I will say this about myself. L.A. is a cruel place. Uh, once you get north of 50, and, and for me, once you get north of uh, 225. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> people like, I, I, I don't feel like you get this look like, what are you doing here? Get out of here. Right. <laughs> how dare you? How dare you come to the Los Feliz Vons during the day, old man? What are you, a former roadie? Okay. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, you know, I almost sometimes I wish that there was Logan's Run, yeah, because my crystal started blinking a long time ago, and I would have gladly gone to Carousel and and risen to the ceiling. You know what I mean? Like, right. We we only care about the young and the goddamn beautiful. All right, Armed Forces is Elvis Costello's third studio record. It was released in January of 1979. It was the first album to officially credit the attractions on the cover. The U.S. version omitted the track Sunday's Best and replaced it with Elvis Costello's version of Nick Lowe's What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding. Other notable tracks on the record, Oliver's Army and Accidents Will Happen. Initial pressings of the album in the U.S. and the U.K. also included a promotional three-song EP live at Hollywood High. Holy shit, to have been an attendee at an Elvis Costello show at Hollywood High School, I can't even imagine. Right. My, wife, my wife saw at the Palomino. Oh, the, your wife saw Elvis Costello at the Palomino in North Hollywood? Yes. Holy shit. Did, is your wife from Los Angeles? Yeah, she grew up here. She was from England originally, but she came here when she was like eight. Damn. Now for people listening And she's home, a little older than me, so... She that, she got she got some, some cooler stuff. She was in the audience at the Stop Making Sense filming too. Uh, where did they shoot Stop Making Sense at the Shrine? At the Pantages. At the Pantages, amazing. Now, for people uh, listening at home, my aunt Jean in Hudson, Ohio, the Palomino was a very famous uh, club in North Hollywood of all places, way out in Lancashire, and it was sort of a, a country and a rock place. And, uh, and, and a venue for a lot of famous shows. I did not know that Elvis Costello played at the Palomino. I wonder if that also had to do with his fandom of Johnny Cash and, and, and some of the other old lumin- uh, country luminaries that had played at the Palomino. Yeah, it could, it could well be. Right on. So you, did you meet your wife here out here in Los Angeles? I did, yeah. Although what was strange is she had, uh, though I didn't meet through any of our friends, she had known a bunch of friends of mine out here who I had met when they came to Minneapolis, including Dave Gruberell and who we talked about. And so I met her, she was actually her record deal. My wife was a singer songwriter. And, uh, as her record deal was falling apart, she got a temp job and, uh, it ended up being the assistant for Greg Kinnear on later with Greg Kinnear. So that's where, I, that's where I met her. And then she and I, we had a band with Gruber and Paul Feig and her and another player for years together, too. Wait, what was that band called? 
called the depreciators at least most most often called the depreciators were you guys doing that show at like luna park or were you doing that show at largo we, or we we played mostly at uh genghis khan genghis yeah, khan uh, genghis cohen and yeah, molly malone's occasionally the wow. jay gigs wow that's amazing was and was comedy a part of that show uh, funniness was, but it wasn't a uh, it was a comedy band. It was a funny band, and mostly we played Allison's songs. Um, it, does your wife still uh, do that to this day? Uh, she still plays and sings, but she's an English professor now. She was a uh, she had a GED and a bad record deal when I met her, and now she's an English professor. So I, <laughs> I had a lot of cool to knock out of her. But she had a band called Maggie's Farm at the time when I met her, and they 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 did a farm aid and. Opened for Christofferson on the road and, you know, had a little bit of a life. And then the record company went under. The, the, the record industry, the music industry. And I wonder if you felt, if you learned a little bit more making this film about Michael DeBar. Like the music industry is, I think, even crueler than TV and film. Oh, way worse. I've always known that. Yeah, no, I've never wanted, I've never played music with any aspirations in terms of trying to make it. Because it's not, it's not a... It's not a destination that looks good to me at all. It's always just been for fun for me. But yeah, it's much horrible. And it's much less of a meritocracy than comedy. Well, the valley is littered with the bones of people who came out from uh, wherever they came. Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Denver, to make it in the music industry. And um, ended up working at the Staples out on, uh, you, you know, Winnetka and uh, who knows what. Right. I think the third, the, you start getting clues when you come out here, there's subtle clues. But when you see the quality of uh, used cars at the corner used car lot, you go, man, a lot of people jumped the gun on their BMW purchase here. A lot of people. You know? <laughs> that is the truth. I remember uh, once a friend of mine was buying a house and the realtor said, look, I'm always going to be able to sell these nice homes to young kids who've just gotten on a sitcom. Right. So, and if they only keep the house for a year exactly. or two, it's fine because I'll replace them with somebody else right after that. Right. I never heard that about the, the measurement of the used car lots as an it indicator. It's just an observation I made very early on. I don't I, know. You're, you're, you're a million percent right. And I think everyone should know that and pay attention to that because it's absolutely true. <laughs> Yeah, no, I've always had this very keen sense that uh, living within uh, your lo your long-term means as opposed to your this-minute means is a good way to work. But you, but you, I mean, not to, uh, I hope this doesn't sound like I'm, you know, sucking up to you or anything, but you've been able to morph in and out of all kinds of different things over your your career here in Los Angeles. I mean, you, you have done a, a, a really cool assortment of stuff. I think part of it is that I, I sort of long ago divorced myself from the idea of fame and fortune. And uh, part of it is that fame doesn't look that good, you know, and fortune's neither here nor there. But, uh, you know, I've always been this person, and I think it's fueled by ADD, frankly, but I've been a person who jumps around and does things that are interesting to me. And 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 so routine is, is, is almost instantly depressing to me. So I'm always looking to learn something new with each project. Uh, but, you know, I've divorced, you know, my last 10 years, I've did, I did a thing called Cinematic Titanic, which was a reunion of the Mystery Science Theater people. And we toured theaters and made our own DVDs. And I've made two documentaries now, and I made a comedy album. So it was all, it's all sort of me chasing my bliss 
through my 40s you know but yeah none of it's especially none of it's been especially profitable none of it is the money of tv working but it's also you know i got to a certain point and went i need to make some of my own stuff i need to put my vibe in the world you know whether it's whether it's with the help of a major studio or not but i felt like even being a big part of other people's projects didn't feel like what i came here to do right on Released in February of 1980, the soul-infused Get Happy was the first of Costello's many experiences with genres beyond punk and new wave. It also marked a distinct change in mood from the angry, frustrated tone of his first three albums to a more upbeat, happy manner. The single, I Can't Stand Up for Falling Down, was an old Sam and Dave song. In 1981, Elvis would go on to release Trust, his fifth record in a row, produced by Nick Lowe. Let me just wrap up my thoughts about Elvis Costello by saying to you, his career is so ridiculously vast and ongoing that I just sort of chose to just throw out the first five records for people uh, listening to this podcast today, because it's impossible. I could have done a whole Elvis Costello show with you just talking about what he did in the 80s and then what he did, you know, from the 90s on. Do you have a favorite Elvis Costello show or a favorite Elvis? Have you met Elvis Costello? I actually have not met Elvis Costello. And I've had a couple of chances where I probably could have, and it wasn't important to me to do so. Yeah, I mean, I I would love to have a reason to be in a conversation with Elvis Costello, you know, of something we're working on or some actual situation puts us in a room so there's an organic conversation. But me going up and saying I'm a big fan or I love your stuff or anything where it's in passing isn't isn't going to be satisfying to me if he doesn't remember. If there's no chance of, of, of a celebrity remembering the conversation, I'm not that interested in having it. My big mistake was going up to Paul Westerberg at a trip Shakespeare show at the Roxy wow. and like... 90, 91. I mean, this is before Trip Shakespeare blew up or broke up, and they played a little show, and there weren't that many people there. But Paul Westerberg was there, sitting at a little cocktail table, and because I was such a giant replacements nerd, and I used to dress like them, my friends were like, "You got to go up and say something to him. You got to go up and say something to him." And I, I did, and I just got the look. The like right. you, you've ruined the last seventeen seconds of my life. Look, and, right. and that was it. I never, never did it again. Other than on stage, where I've seen him a few times, I've seen Paul Westerberg a bunch of times in my life, and it's always at a little cocktail. Pit. <laughs> <laughs> There's a really funny video from local Minneapolis television from like two years ago. I think it's on YouTube, where. The local reporter is out at, you know, he's at a shopping plaza right before Christmas and just asking people what they were buying. He didn't know it was Paul Westerberg that came out of the store with a with a bag of toys, but someone in the crew must have said, hey, that guy's locally famous. Go up and start talking to him. And it's like, it's the most awkward Minneapolis, you know, version. He, he basically says, I know you're famous, but I don't know why. Can you tell me who you are and what you bought? <laughs> I had a moment like that on Minneapolis TV too with Joel Hodgson, one summer we went to a, we went to a movie and was, I think we went to go see like Ghostbusters 2 together. And when we get there, we notice there's this line of people for a screening and it was a screening of the original Tim Burton Batman, which was a big damn deal at the time. And this like, this was the celebrity screening at radio station and there's like, Eddie Money's there, Larry Bud Melman is there and all these people are there. And so Joel and I, 
as we're going into our movie, they let that line in. And so we just slip in to the Batman line and sneak in to watch that movie. And so we, we watch the movie and then we come out of the theater and there's a bunch of local TV people and they, they stick a mic in my face and Joel pops his head in and says something sort of derisive about the movie. I think. <laughs> and, uh, and then I see it like the next night on TV and they show our interview and they're like, that was Joel Hodgson and Josh Weinstein. Among the other celebrities there last night were... <laughs> <laughs> Well, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, dude, we've been talking for an hour, and uh, it's time to wrap things up. I'm, I'm wondering if there's, besides your, your wonderful film, if there's anything else that you, uh, that you want to uh, promote. I assume that the podcast with Andy is still going on. Okay, yeah, my podcast with Andy Kindler, Thought Spiral comes out every monday we've been going for three three plus years now um i got a stand-up album called chunks you can check out and uh i'm also actually co-starred in a movie with uh andy kindler that just came out on uh amazon as well called the fiddling horse where i'm actually one of the leads in this actual film <laughs> holy shit who else is in the movie um paul Lindbergh plays i play her boyfriend in the movie andy kindler um uh, Allie Mills, uh, who was the mother from the Wonder Years, uh, um, the uh, the King of Kong guy has a cameo in it. The King of uh, Kong guy. The King of Kong guy. The good guy or the bad guy? The bad guy. The bad guy. <laughs> no, Billy, what's his name? Right. Uh, it's a fun. It's a fun uh, comedy. It's a. It's a. Andy Kindler plays a uh, disgraced former jockey who drags him into <laughs> a, uh, horse, a horse racing scam. <laughs> Oh, that's hilarious. That's a good premise. Well, uh, listen, everybody, check that out. And, of course, please, please, please check out Michael DeBar, Who Do You Want Me To Be, that Elvis uh, directed and produced and just put together so well. Again, congrats so much. I, I just love that's that movie nice. so very much. And it's just, uh, it's just perfect viewing for this uh, odd period of time that, that we're going through. So, uh, Jay Elvis, I, I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for spending this time with me today. Thanks and for inviting me. It was, it was an absolute pleasure. And, uh, and again... Congratulations. And to the rest of you, thank you so much for listening to the Brando cast. We've got so many great shows coming down the line. Uh, so like, subscribe, tell your friends, yada, yada, blah, blah, blah. And so until the next time, cats and kittens. Don't see you love me, just a room.